The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. We have two scripture reading pa- we have two scripture passages today. The first is from Exodus chapter 20 verse 7. You shall not take the name of your Lord the Lord God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And now from Matthew chapter 7 verses 15 through 23. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's great to be here, here with you today. My name is Lee Eric Fesco. I'm the Director of Discipleship at Christ Presbyterian Church. And uh, I uh, actually am going to have the privilege of, uh, of sharing God's Word with you today. And, and even more so, as I, my job, my role is, is undergoing a bit of a change, uh, which will allow me to, to participate with you all on a more regular basis. Not necessarily preaching, uh, but just being able to be here in this community with you once in a while and, and, uh, and worship with you. There's so many exciting things going on here, and uh, I hear about them, and I'm thrilled for you. Uh, so again, it's a real joy to be here with you, and I want to thank Russ for, for allowing me the privilege of, of sharing God's Word with you today. Uh, I have a question for you as we begin our time today, and that question is, what is in a name? What's in a name? Okay. Have you ever noticed how much meaning we attach to a name? For instance, the most popular female baby name as of the year 2020 is, think of a guess in your mind, right? Olivia. Olivia is the most popular female baby name for 2020 for two years running now. And before that, the name Emma was the five-time-in-a-row running champion. But now the most popular female baby name is Olivia. Now, I have another rhetorical question for the ladies in the room in particular. If you were at a place in your life where you were naming your baby girl, would you be okay with the name Olivia? It's a fine name, right? Of course you would. Now, same name, same question. Would you be okay if to name your baby girl Olivia if you knew your husband's last ex-girlfriend was named Olivia? Again, without a show of hands, 
I'm willing to bet many of you would no longer be okay with that, with that name, you know? Uh, it's the same baby name, right? It's the same baby, the same, this baby girl will never have any knowledge of the old Olivia, whoever that was. Uh, why would it bother you? Well, because names mean something. They carry with them significance. They mean something, not just to the one who, who bears it, but to the one who hears it. Names mean something. Names communicate something. Have you ever noticed how sensitive people are, how sensitive all of us can be to a certain degree about our names? Have you ever introduced yourself to someone, perhaps multiple times even, the next time you see them, they either get your name wrong or they say, I'm sorry, could you remind me of your name again? The nerve, right? I'm getting a little ring back here. I don't know if that... (laughs) What would you have thought if I came up here and I I thanked my dear friend, Ross Ramsey, for having me here today? (laughs) Your dear friend? Hi, it's nice to meet you. My name is Lee Eric. Oh, hi there, Lee. Lee Eric. It's a double name, like Jim Bob, right? We're sensitive about names. Again, names mean something. If you know my name, you know something of me. It's not just a label. It carries significance. We're in a sermon series, as you've already heard, entitled The Law of Moses, and we reach the commandment that has everything to do with a name. And we just heard moments ago, the first text we're referring to comes from Exodus 20, verse 7, and it said this, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, there's our commandment, right? Now let's ask ourselves, why, why is God so concerned about protecting his name? In scripture, uh, like I was alluding to now, in a modern context, there's a close connection between a person's name and their character. Uh, note the instances in the Bible. I'm, I'm thinking of Abraham in particular, whose name was originally Abram. Abram. But then God changes it to Abraham. Why? It has everything to do with identity and character. Abram roughly translates to noble father. But what was God's promise to Abraham? Not just that he would be a father, but that he would be a father to a multitude of nations. So because of his promise to Abram, God changed his name to Abraham, which translates to father of many. Names mean something. Perhaps, perhaps the biggest display of name and the meaning that goes along with it is the name of God, Yahweh. In Exodus chapter 3, when God revealed his name to Moses in the burning bush, what did he say his name was? Yahweh, which we translate that as I am who I am. Now, what God is doing there is showing us that his name is identical with his being and his attributes, his character. His name conveys the idea of his eternal existence and self-sufficiency. And the Israelites were to acknowledge this and refrain from tossing it around in casual conversation. And honestly, when we think about this commandment, this is what we tend to think the commandment is telling us. We really reduce it to what we would classify as cursing. So, so as long as we don't use the Lord's name as a curse word, right? We should be clear. We should have a clear conscience insofar as this, this commandment is concerned. But it may not surprise you to know that there's so much more to it than that. There's a negative, as we already heard this morning in our liturgy, there's a negative component to the commandment and a positive component to it as well. On the one hand, it instructs us not to use the name of the Lord in vain. It forbids us to do something. On the other hand, it requires us to use the name of the Lord in a worthy manner. It requires us to do something as well. 
So, so here's what I'd like to do for the rest of the time that we've got together this morning. I, I want to I look at some of the ways the Israelites might have misused the name of God. So look at the historical context. Then I want to try and give you a modern contextual equivalent. Sometimes we think about the Ten Commandments and we think that perhaps it doesn't apply to us quite the same as it did back then, when in fact we're almost no different than our Israelite brothers and sisters. Then we want to talk about how Christ fulfills this commandment on our behalf. And finally, in light of that, we want to talk about the right way to use God's name. So those are the things we want to talk about today. And by my watch, we should be done by one o'clock or so. So hang with me, okay? <laughs> Historically speaking, from the Israelite perspective, the most common ways the Lord's name was misused was in the areas of, of sorcery and false prophecy. And, in the taking of, 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 and also in the taking of false oaths, which is interesting, isn't it? That's quite different than the way we think about using the Lord's name in vain. Sorcery and, and false prophecy, that seems so, so distant. But like we heard last week, when we hear about making idols, it's really not about making a golden statue and bowing down to it. We, we make all, idols all the time today, right? Do you use the name of the Lord in vain today in sorcery and false prophecy? Can I see a show of hands? All of you engaged in sorcery and using the name of the Lord. Okay, not very, I didn't, I was glad, I'm glad some, someone didn't raise their hand quite honestly. So in the original context, there were people who believed they could gain access to the supernatural by using divine names and magical incantations. So in other words, it was a way to manipulate or control whatever deity they deemed to be in charge. If I call upon the name of the deity, it will have a beneficial result for me. We don't use the name of the Lord for our gain, do we? It's, it's not what we would label as sorcery, but it's exactly the same expected outcome. If I'm trying to boost my own position or boost my own credibility by invoking the name of the Lord, I am misusing the name of the Lord. Think of all the things we've tried to staple the name of God to so we can boost our own position. The crusades were done in the name of the Lord. Politicians all the time will use the name of the Lord to, to pull a few votes their way. You know, I'm using the name of the Lord to produce a desired outcome, and that somehow benefits me. Not, not my glory, but for his. I'm misusing the name of the Lord. And this is closely related to false prophecy too. We don't often think of false prophets in our midst because not many of us walk around claiming the title of prophet. Wait, but Learch, aren't there pastors and religious leaders who hold an office like that of a prophet? That's what a pastor or minister is, right? What if they claim the name of Jesus but live secretly horrible lives? Well, sure, granted, and I'm sure that happens. It does happen. But we're, try we're trying to look at ourselves here. Are we guilty of this at all? Have you ever used the name of the Lord to boost your own credibility? I once was conducting a job interview, and I, and I was the hiring manager. And the person I was interviewing told me, God told me that this was my job, that you were going to hire me. My only response back to them, in all seriousness, was, I wasn't kidding around. I said, I wonder why he hasn't told me that. It seems to me as the hiring manager that if God was going to tell someone something, that he might tell me, the hiring manager. And that struggle was all the more difficult because the person clearly wasn't the most qualified. It was, it was, I was really perplexed. What am I supposed to say here? And I have to admit that the, the hairs on my arms raise up a little bit whenever someone says, God told me. I wince a little bit. By what authority do you say those words? Sometimes we'll often rightly say it when referring to God's word. 
God said to me to love my neighbor. Of course, he tells us this. It's in his word. He said so in the Bible. We can say that. But if I'm trying to put myself in a place of authority over someone for my own sake, by invoking the name of God, I'm misusing God's name. The same could be said for, for taking of false oaths. Historically speaking, people would often make statements like, as surely the Lord lives, and they lift up the name of God in an effort to prove they were telling the truth in court or in cases of uh, business deals. That would still apply for the modern context, too. If we lie in court, we're, we're misusing the name of God, although less and less we seem to be invoking the name of God in courtrooms and, and business deals. But I would offer this to you as a challenge to any of you who would identify as a Christian. Remember whose name you bear. You bear the name of Christ in your identity. And so what this means is that you're, in a sense, always bearing the name of God. So there isn't any circumstance, there isn't any setting where you're absolved from telling the truth. As those who bear the name of Christ, truth should be synonymous with our identity. But not only truth. This is what we just saw as we read through the, the shorter catechism. It applies to all our actions as to those who bear the name of Christ. This is what the commandment requires of us. I remember once when I was in college, you don't see them much these days, but back then, I had one of those little uh, Jesus fishes on the back of my car. Do you remember those? Now, that was your way of telling the world, yeah, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. So I was putting myself out there as a Jesus follower. In that seemingly innocuous way, I was bearing the name of Christ. World, look at me and look at the way I drive. I'm a Christian. After one too many moving violations, I decided that perhaps I needed to rethink the Jesus fish and perhaps my driving habits as well. I had to ask myself, am I really properly invoking the name of Jesus here? Am I misusing God's name? Am I bearing God's name rightly? Back in the time of Jesus, the Pharisees would have been guilty of this. They, they were the ones who, professionally speaking, right? It could be said that they bore the name of God. They were the religious leaders of the day. If you wanted access to God, you had to pay attention to what they were saying and you had to do the things they were telling you to do. They were the teachers. So you might have noticed we also read uh, from our scripture today. It was also included that New Testament passage from Matthew. And we're doing this with all the commandments uh, in this series. And embedded in that passage is arguably one of the most terrifying passages in the Bible from Matthew 7, uh, just 22 and 23. On that day, many of you will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What's so terrifying about that verse, if we're being honest, is that I'm willing to bet for any of you who have read that verse at some point, or even for those of you who perhaps read it now, that might be thinking, could that be me? What if that's me? Am I one of those who is saying, Lord, Lord, and he replies, depart from me, I never knew you. You see, this has everything to do with the name of the Lord and its misuse. Are you calling on the name of the Lord to be saved? Are you placing your trust in his name to serve as your substitute? Do you believe in the name of Jesus as being the one who, who displaces your sin, as the one who takes your sin and places it upon his shoulders? And do you believe that in the process he gives you his righteousness so that you might be declared righteous before God, so that you might be accepted by God? 
If you believe that, then you are using the name of the Lord rightly. And you have nothing to worry about insofar as Matthew 7 is concerned. Matthew 7 has everything to do with the misuse of his name. He's directing his righteous anger at those teachers who would use the name of the Lord for their own benefit, for their own advancement, for their own agenda. They were using the name of the Lord to hold power over people. And in that case, if that's the objective, the Lord says to those who do this, no, not with my name. No, you don't. And again, if you look at the second half of the commandment today, look what it says, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The Lord will not hold him guiltless. That's an, that's an expression which grammarians would call a meiosis. What's a meiosis? A meiosis is a figure of speech that intentionally understates something or implies that it is lesser in significance or size than it really is. I remember my parents would engage in this sort of thing when I was growing up. If I was misbehaving, right, it could have been my mother or father who would just look at me and say something like, keep it up. That was, that was all I needed to hear, right? I knew that meant I shouldn't keep it up, right? They're, under, they're, under, they're understating the severity of their true feelings right now, I would think, as a seven-year-old boy. So when the Lord says he will not hold someone guiltless for misusing his name, what he means is that he will condemn them. He will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. You see, in a linear sort of way, all the commandments, all the commandments lead us back to the first. If someone is misusing the name of the Lord, breaking commandment three, they're using it for their own sake, they're using it for their own advancement, for their own agenda, not his and what this means is they've made an idol out of something that's causing them to use the name of the Lord in an inappropriate manner. That's fracture and commandment too. And if they've done that, they've placed themselves in God's seat rather than keeping God in the place that's rightfully his. They've broken commandment one. And if they're serving another God, the Lord's message is clear. I, I don't know you. You see what this commandment teaches us that it's the name of the Lord. It has meaning, significance. It has power. And it's not to be misused. And that misusing it leads us to a pretty negative direction. It can lead to a destructive direction. Now, I know to this point, much of this has felt and sounded pretty negative. There's nothing like coming to church and hearing a message on the commandments. Here's a list of things that you shouldn't be doing because if you do them, well, it's bad. And in one sense, he tells us these things because he takes no delight in someone's self-destruction. But on the other hand, if that's where we left it, if we stopped there, we wouldn't be doing our job as, as preachers and teachers and pursuers of the Bible. Whenever we talk about the commandments, we have to make mention of the preamble to the commandments. And this is true throughout the whole Bible. Whenever God gives us a command, he always reminds us in whose power we execute those commands. Always. Find any commandment in the Bible, this is the case. He gives a command, but he doesn't do it without a reminder of who he is and what he's done for you. Bible teachers call this the indicative and the imperative. He never gives us a command, an imperative, without telling us who he is and what he's done for us, the indicative. The commandments begin like this, Exodus 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's how he begins the Ten Commandments. Remember this, remember this, I delivered you. I am your deliverer. I brought you out of slavery. I went before you. I fought your battles. Now here's the first commandment. So you see, what this means is that the commandments aren't all bad news. 
They aren't just a list of do's and don'ts. They tell us of God's character. Remember at the start of our time, they're telling us about God's identity. The Ten Commandments are telling us about God's identity. They tell us who he is, but these commandments have, have uh, never, have never been a means of earning God's favor. As strict and as tight as these laws are, they're, they're deeper than we thought. They require more of us than we thought. We can quickly feel the burden of the law. We can, we can feel enslaved as the Israelites all over again. But what does God say? I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I must have been in the fifth grade uh, when I was given an assignment. The assignment was we were to make a model of an adobe hut. Now, for those of you who don't know what an adobe hut is, in the fifth grade social studies sense, it's a structure, a hut made of, of, of sun-dried blocks of earth and straw. Uh, so it's structurally essentially made of clay and mud. This is what my fifth grade ears heard anyway. So I set about to do my project and quickly came to a place where I was really realizing how difficult it was to make an adobe hut. I didn't have the ability or skill to do this. By the time I finished, I, I brought it to my father and it was nothing more than a lump of mud on a sheet of plywood. I did it. This lump of mud wasn't forecasting a good grade to my father. This was causing me a great deal of stress. And I realized how poorly I'd ex executed the assignment. It was a pile of mud on a piece of wood. And as was the case typically back then, it was a last-minute endeavor. It's due tomorrow. <laughs> My father, on the other hand, he, he knew some stuff. He was skilled in many things. One of my dad's side hobbies was model trains. Even late into his life, he enjoyed playing with model trains. And as a part of his train-playing hobby, he would make the model landscape that these, tra uh, these trains would, would weave their way through. So for my dad, to build a model adobe hut, this, this was nothing to him. I took my lump of mud and, and followed him to the garage, and well, we, we basically started over. I watched him, and I watched exactly what he did and how he made it. And, and to make a long story short, by the time he finished, I had a very real-looking adobe hut. I took it to school with me, I turned it in, I got an A+, and all of my classmates said, there's no way you did that. <laughs> and even the teacher, including the teacher, knew that, that that wasn't my work. But I was able to explain to him exactly how it was made, step by step. I told him what my dad did in my presence for me. You see, my dad, he took my burden. He took what was required of me and took it upon himself and did it for me, and I got the credit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is what he does for us. He takes the burden. He takes the law upon himself. He takes the commandment upon himself. And just when we start to feel the weight of the law bearing down upon us, when we start to realize the law has greater depth than we realize, and then we're far more guilty of breaking the law than we ever realize, this is when the Lord steps in and says, I am your deliverer. How does he do this? How does he deliver us? I'll bet you already know the answer already. It comes to us by way of a name. What is the positive form of the commandment? To use his name rightly. It's the name Jesus. The name Jesus is the English transliteration of the Greek name Iesus, which is a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew name Yehoshua. The name we get 
Joshua from? And that literally, that literally means Yahweh is salvation. So the name of Jesus, you could say, articulates the idea that God himself is salvation. God himself will provide salvation. And how did God provide salvation? Through Jesus, who is the very incarnation of God's name. Remember the promise of God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. It's a reminder that God fights for you. That he goes before you and is your salvation. This idea is embedded in the very name of Jesus. That it would be God himself that would save. Yahweh, or the Lord is salvation. Jesus fulfills the obligation of this command by his very existence. In Peter's sermon at, at Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, he makes the connection between the name of God and the name of Christ. When he quotes, he's quoting Joel 2, uh, 32. Peter's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting the Old Testament. This is in Acts 2.21, where he's quoting from the prophet Joel. He says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter's referring to Jesus there. He's talking about Jesus. But in the original context in Joel, where Peter is quoting, it says this, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And the word for Lord there is Yahweh, the holy name of God that was revealed to Moses in the burning bush. So do you see what Peter is saying there? He's saying that to call in the name of Yahweh is to call upon Jesus, who is God incarnate. So Jesus fulfills this commandment by becoming the embodiment of the name of God Almighty. He is the salvation of Yahweh. He is in the flesh what God's name means. And then this leads me to my last point, which will be quite simple and, and quite brief. Yes, the commandment restricts our behavior in that we refrain from doing something, but it also admonishes us to do something, to take action. And that is, as the name of the sermon implies, to use the name of God rightly. How do we do that? Certainly, yes, we use the name of the Lord to pray, to praise and give thanks to God. We use it rightly in that respect. But friends, the best way I can think of to use the name of the Lord is to call upon the name of Jesus to be your savior, to be your deliverer, the one who brings you out of slavery. Believe in the name of Jesus that he paid the price for your sins by taking on your punishment on the cross and then imputing his righteousness to you so that you may be accepted by God. Or succinctly stated, Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Please pray with me. Lord, we want to acknowledge the fact that we often, frequently, fail to honor the third commandment. So please give us the strength and the power to keep it in every circumstance. But Father, as you've promised us, you go before us. You fight our battles. You are the one who supplies the strength to carry out your commandments. But we're so grateful. Our hearts are full because it was your son, Jesus, in whose name we can place our trust to fulfill this commandment perfectly on our behalf and save us from the weight of the law. Thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.